This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today we come to the very conclusion of it all, and all the loose ends are tied up. Um, Today we come to find out what actually happened with that edict um, that was made for all the people in the Persian Empire to slaughter the Jews. What actually happened? You see, what had happened in this book is the kings, uh, there was a king named Ahasuerus, and his right-hand man uh, was a guy named Haman, and Haman hated Jews. This is the Persian Empire, 480 BC, uh, the largest empire of the world, and the right-hand man of the man, uh, king hates Jews, in particular one Jew named Mordecai. And so what he does is he makes an edict that all the Jews are to be killed by those around them on a certain day. And uh, so he passes this edict. Well, what happens is the king doesn't know, but his own wife, the queen, is Jewish. She's hidden that fact, and he doesn't know that. So through Esther's actions, what God does is he takes the guy who made the edict, uh, he uh, ultimately exposes him, Haman. Haman is killed, and Mordecai, the guy he hated, the Jew, is raised up into power. And the king tells Mordecai, you can make whatever edict you want. I can't revoke, legally, I can't revoke the edict that everyone in Persia is supposed to kill every Jew, women and children. That that was the edict. They're all supposed to do that. I can't revoke that edict, but I can let you write whatever edict you want to uh, neutralize it. So, uh, Mordecai writes an edict saying all the Jews are legally free to completely defend themselves against any attack from uh, their neighbors uh, on this particular day, uh, the 13th of the month of Adar. So that's what happens, and today we find out what happens on that fateful day. So I'm going to read this passage in three sections, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. So here's the first act, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 
Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, and they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another." Okay, so this first section, I know it's a lot of detail, but this first act is about how the Jews defeat those who attack them. The Jews defeat those who hate them. And so here we have a complete reversal. Last week we talked about all these reversals. Queen Esther has a reversal. Mordecai and Haman have a reversal. And here is a reversal for all the people who are Jewish. They now have victory over them who seek to kill them. Verse 1 says that those the people in the, in the province or in the empire sought to uh, gain mastery over them. It says the reverse, verse 1, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand against them. So they successfully defended themselves. They were the target of a, a specific call uh, of death. They had a death sentence over them all, but God worked and they are preserved. In fact, this is amazing. Talk about reversals. It says that the government officials uh, all supported the Jews. It said that they helped them, um, actually helped them for the fear of Mordecai. So Mordecai, this guy, had been raised to the right hand of the king. He's a powerful man. He's Jewish, and he's advocating for the Jews. So all of the other leaders under him are all afraid of Mordecai, respect him, and they decide that they want to help the Jews. Now, it doesn't, sound, it doesn't say how they helped them. Perhaps they gave them, some speculate, perhaps they gave them weapons of some sort. We don't know. But here, many of the Jews were likely defenseless, and the actual governing officials come alongside and help them. It is amazing, amazing reversal. And then they also reported in this passage in verse 7, with all those names I could not pronounce, and if you're ever called to read biblical passages publicly, what you do when you come to names like that is you read really fast and confidently, and people will think you know what the names are, just like Joe and Bill, and, and I just gave away my little secret, but uh, I have no idea how to pronounce the, the, the names of the ten sons of Haman. But they are actually 
actually killed. Now, why is this? Well, this was typical practice in the ancient world because their father had been executed by authority of the king. They, their father opposed the Jews. So it would be very naturally for them who were with their father, if they, if they had lived, to uh, be able to rise up again in vengeance to defend their father and to defend the anti-Semitic, we could say, the anti-Semitic cause in the Persian Empire. So to prevent, present them, prevent them from being able to uh, you know, uh, take, take up the cause, uh, they are executed or they are killed as well. So if you notice, three times it mentioned that they didn't take any plunder. Why is that? Because it's a defensive battle. It's not an offensive battle. Now, there are places, this isn't a sermon for that. There are places in the Old Testament where the people of God act offensively in battle, but that's not here. Here they're defending themselves. So since it's a defensive battle, they're not going to go in and take people's stuff after they die. They're simply going to kill those who are trying to kill them. So the king hears about what happened in Susa, and he says to Queen Esther, uh, wow, 500 people, in verse 12, he says, 500 people were killed in the capital city. I can't imagine what's going on throughout the entire empire. So what request would you have? Now, it doesn't tell us why he offers a request to the queen. She can make another request of him. It doesn't say why, but it's a good thing that he does that because she says, well, we need another day here in the city. Would you extend the edict one more day? Why is that? Some people think Esther was getting bloodthirsty or that she was opportunistic or something like that. Well, that's not the case. Uh, she's not, they're not opportunistic because they're not taking any plunder. And there's no, sense, there's no sense in the text that says Esther would somehow be bloodthirsty. Probably what's going on is they want the job finished. There are still armed enemies that are opposing the Jews that, that uh, they think will still attack. So she's asking for another day. Again, it's a defensive war, but they must think there's more offense coming. There's more people poised to battle, to attack them. So she asked for another day. They, he gives them another day and 300 more enemies are killed. Verse 16 tells us that throughout the, all of the empire, what happened was there was 75,000 people who hated the Jews that sought to kill them that were in turn killed themselves. So it's an amazing battle where a minority people uh, defend themselves against the majority, a hatred, and, uh, and they win. They are uh, sustained. So what happens is there is a great feast. Verse 17, it says they feasted. There was a day of feasting and gladness on the 14th day of Adar. Now in Susa, they went two days. They battled the 13th and the 14th. So in Susa, on the 15th day of Adar, which is March, roughly March in their calendar, they uh, celebrate with this feasting. And it says that they actually have a holiday. Verse 19, this becomes a holiday. So that's what happens. The Jews defend themselves, the Jews win the battle, and they feast afterwards and have a holiday. Let's go to the next section, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness from mourning into a holiday and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor 
So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, And it was recorded in writing. So what happens in this section? Well, basically the spontaneous feasting that happened after the battle becomes official. And they are charged to do this celebration every year on the 14th and 15th days of Adar. Uh, This still goes on to this day among Jews. Um, And so they are called to get together and celebrate. Why? Because verse 22 tells us they got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into a holiday. They got relief. Now, we talked all summer that God is never mentioned in this book. This whole book is a book about God working behind the scenes through his invisible hand, caring for his people, coordinating circumstances, working mysteriously in ways that the people can't see and know. And so here when it says they got relief, certainly the implication there is that they received relief. It's not they defended themselves in battle and they were amazing. They got relief that God is the one who ultimately provided relief for them. He provided through an edict that said they could defend themselves he provided by the rulers of Persia assisting them. So he provided in very normal looking ways. It wasn't miraculous. It wasn't like lightning came down and struck the Persians. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like some plague went out and they all got sick and died. It wasn't anything like that. It was the normal means of battle. And, and he reversed their sorrow to gladness. And so they have days of feasting and gladness. And he adds to this that they should also, verse 22, be days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So it was a day to exchange gifts and it was a day to care for those who were in need. Now, this is what's so interesting about all of this. What did they name this holiday? They named it Purim. And they named it Purim because 
it's taken from like one or two verses in the whole book that talks about poor. Poor were lots, and, and lo- not like a bunch of stuff, not like lots of something, but lots like dice. And what happened is this Haman guy wanted to kill all the Jews, but he basically rolled dice, or it's, we don't know exactly what, how the lots worked, but they may have been rolled, or somehow it was a way that you could get a sign, and you could get what is the will of the God. So it was a way that you figured out God's will. So you know, I don't know, he's rolling for sevens, or he's doing something, he's got to, whatever number it is, he's getting God's direction, his God, uh, little g God's direction. So he uses lots, and he picks this day, the 13th day of Adar. So this day is picked, this is the day of slaughter by lots. And so the Jews call the very celebration lots, it's, it's like saying, we're going to have a big celebration. It's dice day. That's literally what they're saying. It's dice day. It is the celebration of dice. So why would they name an event after the very method that was orchestrated to pick the day to annihilate them all? It's because it really wasn't the lots that, that determined the trajectory of God's people. It was the God over the lots. It was God himself. He worked a reverse. The evil plan is turned up on his, its head, and it shows us that God triumphs. Human will doesn't triumph. The chance of a number coming up to pick a day doesn't triumph. It's not, it's not some random thing that triumphs. It's not some impersonal force or some foreign God or chance. It is God. God oversees the way the dice roll in this situation. Psalm 16, for instance, says, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now we use the same language today. What is a lottery? What is a lottery? It's something, it's a chance play to win a lot of money. Uh, by spending money you don't have to spend to win a lot of money you will never win. That's what a lottery is. And how does it keep working? Because the house is winning. You aren't. The house is winning. So this is how the lottery, so we get lot lottery. Or how about we use the exact same language? Well, I guess this is my lot in life. What does that mean? I guess this is what fate, the hand that fate has dealt me. I guess this is just the way the, 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 this, it's a roll of the dice. We say that. It's a roll. This is just what has happened. But the Bible says, God, you hold my lot. The lot that comes to me is not chance. The lot that comes to me is the invisible hand of God. The people of God are saying, it's not chance. It's not other gods. You alone are our God. You determine our lot. You reversed our circumstances and our hope is in you. And just as a reminder, we're going to call it dice every year. We're going to come and feast. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to give gifts. We're going to care for the poor. And we're going to call it dice because we're just going to laugh in the face of the idea that the people of 
God are controlled by the chance or by the will of humans. It is by God and God alone. So it's a brilliant name. I think it's kind of an in-your-face name. It's kind of a taunting name. It's taunting chance and fate where there's such a thing. It's taunting uh, all all foreign gods who would claim any power and saying, God preserves his people, come to dice day. We're gonna celebrate the Lord who determines what happens to us. And by the way, he is good even when we don't understand what is happening. The last act is we could call Mordecai's promotion. It's very short. It's interesting, I don't know why chapter divisions are made the way they are, but it's only the last three verses are one chapter. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So we end up, it's a great celebration. God is in control, but it's still a foreign world, still a fallen world, and we're still in exile because the first line is, and the king taxes everybody. So he's not, he's not changed totally. He's still a good governor taxing everybody, except in these situations, he wasn't taxing probably for road repair and for education uh, or stuff like that. He's taxing for his own treasury. And so anyway, the king is taxing. So it's like, we're not in heaven yet. There's a great celebration. God is in charge, but there are still taxes to pay, and uh, we still live in a fallen world. Uh, And then it just talks about Mordecai, who was raised up, and what did Mordecai do with his power? He, last verse of the book, he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That is good leadership. That is godly leadership. God puts us in places of responsibility to act for the good of others, particularly the people of God, and to speak peace to all people, to work, to be peacemakers, and to reconcile. And so wherever God has placed you, you're not at the right hand of a Persian emperor, but you're somewhere. You're in a home uh, caring for your kids. Uh, You are working uh, tomorrow morning at your job. You live in a particular neighborhood, and God is entrusted to you and puts you there in whatever leadership role, whatever place of influence you have so that you can act for the welfare, for the good of others, and so that you can speak and act for peace and justice wherever you are and wherever I am as well. So that's, we kind of end with Mordecai. And there's some debate, even though it's called the book of Esther, scholars who don't have a lot to do, I guess, I don't know, but they debate who's the, who's the main character of the story. Because when you read it at the end, it'd be easy to say Mordecai is the hero of the story. And so some say, really Mordecai's the hero. And others say, well, no, it's Esther. It's kind of got her name on it. But she is the queen who finalizes with ultimate authority. She's ruling as well for the good of her people. Um, And so she is the one with ultimate authority at the end. But if you've been with us all summer, then you know we've said week in and week out, Mordecai's not the hero and Esther's not the hero. God is the hero of the book. And even the name of the event Purim is a challenge to say it is God who holds our lot. So if God's the hero, I'm going to make two application points and we're done with the book. We're going to wrap up here. This first point I've made week in and week out. And that is the book of Esther and this last section in particular calls us to believe that God is always at work. 
God is always at work, especially when we don't see him. Especially when we don't see him. And that's what we need to be reminded of, that God is working through providence for the good of his people. Providence is God's work in natural, normal ways that are not miraculous. They're what's kind of happening this morning. They're what's going to probably happen this afternoon. I mean, you could see a miracle this afternoon, um, but probably the forces of nature are not going to be obstructed when you sit down for lunch today and there's going to be a miracle. Uh, It's going to be normal. And so this is the way that God regularly works through providence. It means that he cares for his people through the ordinary circumstances of life. It means God is working in your life, even through the mundane. And that's why every day matters. That's why everything we do matters. That's why every relationship matters. That's why the God who is, as we talked about last week, is the God of turnarounds, the God of comebacks, the God of reversals, could be engineering a reversal, a comeback right now in your life life in some way, and you don't even know it. But it gives us confidence that God is always at work, Um, not only through really amazing moments or really incredible, miraculous things, but in normal things that look like coincidences. The book is filled with coincidences, but they're really God at work for his people. The entire book, if you recall, the entire book turns Upon a mundane event, the king cannot sleep. He has insomnia. And God takes the king's insomnia and uses that to rescue his people. It's normal. God doesn't come down, like I said, with fire, with lightning, with slaying all the Persians with his breath and with the wave of his hand. He does that kind of thing other places in the Bible, but he doesn't do it. He just wakes a king up. A king, and and, and that led to the deliverance of his people. He is at work at all times. Now, this is a celebration passage, and so I want to teach it like it is, but I, I must say this. To be responsible, I must say this. God also works in hard providences. These are good providences in Esther 9. Lots of the Bible talks about hard providences. A lot of us in the room are in dark providences today. That means something bad is happening in your life, but God is working there as well. And the New Testament teaches us that we know that for those, Romans 8, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So in this situation, it works for their good in this life in a tangible way that they can see. That doesn't always happen. Cancer patients are not always healed. Christian cancer patients are not always healed. Some die and go to be with Jesus. Um, Unemployed people who put out, Christians who put out multiple resumes don't always get the job that they really hoped for and felt they were best prepared for. Marriages that are in deep trouble aren't fixed by a prayer and one moment. There are difficult providences. A, A child going through a difficult time, it's not that that all changes overnight for you or for me. Certain suffering, certain patterns of suffering stick with people their lifetimes sometimes. So this is the reality. It's not that every time the battle is won this side of heaven. It is won eternally, but not every time does it work out this way. But we know, here's the good news, that even when it's not going well, God will use that for our good to help us to be more like Jesus, to conform us to him. And here's the reality, that oftentimes we know Jesus personally by the Spirit in suffering in a way that we can never know him when things are going great. 
It is through the most, you take someone who lives, who's a godly person, loves the Lord, is a person of his word and prayer and fellowship and suffers incredibly, and you will find people that know things about the Lord that those of us who suffer little don't even know. They've gone to places intimately with the Lord in fellowship through their suffering. So the Lord will even use our difficulties for our good. But, but I want to say that because that's responsible. There's people suffering in the room, and I can't promise everybody has dice day party like these folks do. Um, But in this case, that's exactly what happened. And it is a wonderful providence. Um, they, They have been delivered. It's not random, but as the people of God, they receive his care. And, and, and it is God who takes care of his people. It, it is not the stars. We're not in the power. It's not the power of the stars. It's not an impersonal fate. It's not just the way things work out. It is the result of the hand of God. And so this book teaches us to believe that God is at work. And what happens to me and what happens to you and what happens to God's people and what happens to us as a church, that may be out of our control, but it is not out of God's control. That's what the book wants us to see. It is not out of God's control. There's page after page of Esther where if you could put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of the Jews in the book, you would be tempted to say, where are you, God? Why are you letting this happen? Do you care about us? Page after page, they could ask that. But in the end, it's revealed that yes, he is the God of turnarounds and reversals, and they are celebrating. Why are they celebrating? Because they were not forgotten. God remembers his people. God intervenes. He reversed their circumstances. And now they're called to remember every year his intervention, to remember every year what God did for them. The day of death passed, and they were living, and they were to celebrate that. So we need to remember as well. And perhaps you are in a place in life right now where you would be like one of the Jews in the story, where you're asking, God, do you see me? God, do you, I'm down here, do you remember? God, do you care? Some of us are thinking that today because of what we're walking through. We look at our circumstances and we equate our circumstances to what God is like. And we say, God, if you're real, how can this be happening? If you cared about my situation, you would do something miraculous. You would come in and do something crazy to turn everything around. And this book calls us to look to God regardless of what is going on and to believe and to, de- to trust that God is at work all around us in ways that we cannot see for our good and that he will use everyday occurrences at times, to turn our situation around. He is at work in the ordinary. And this led them to celebrate. They celebrate God's ordinary work for them. They celebrate God's care. They celebrate God working in the normal means of life to preserve them. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. It may be really, really bad, but you're here. You're preserved. God's with you. He is speaking to you today from his scripture. He surrounded you with people who would be happy to bear your burdens with you if you let them know. 
You're here. He sustains. He holds us up. He's given us another day. And his mercies are new every morning. There is something to celebrate even in dark times. To celebrate that he is my God and that he is at work and that he is with me. And that's what they celebrate. So we are to believe God is always at work and we are to celebrate God at work. And we'll wrap up here the whole book. We're to celebrate God at work. I just love that verse 22 in chapter 9. They celebrate because they got relief from their enemies. And that turned their sorrow to gladness, their mourning into a holiday. And so it's such a good deal that they, they celebrate with one another. And they say, man, this is so good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give gifts. God, look what God has done to me. I'm going to give gifts to others. And not only that, not only am I going to give gifts to my friends and, and those who could give me a gift back, Uh, I'm going to give gifts to the poor who really are in need. Think of what God has done for us. How can I not remember those in need? That's what happens at Purim. That's what happens on this day. It became an annual celebration for them to laugh, to eat, and to drink, and to feast, and to give gifts. And to say, look what God did for us. Now, here's something I never knew until this week. I didn't know a lot about Purim. I mean, I've heard, I'd heard of it. I didn't know. Here's something I did not know until this week. Purim is the last festival of the year. So Jews had uh, festivals throughout the year, a number that they celebrated. Uh, and this is the last of the year. The first celebration of the year is Passover. So if you're a Jew celebrating what God did in the Old Covenant, you start your year saying, God miraculously delivered us from Egypt. And when Pharaoh and his soldiers came through the Red Sea, he split the Red Sea for us, tie into children's ministry. He split the Red Sea for us, which they're studying right now. And then he destroyed Pharaoh and all of his army. Miraculously, God delivered us. That's the first celebration of the year. That's a New Year's party right there. So they celebrate that all year, all year, all year. Here's how they close the year. God delivered us through a king that could not sleep one night. Through the mundane, ordinary, through, there was this edict, and then there was like another edict, and there was these bunch of coincidences where, where Haman's going to come and say, kill Mordecai, and the king says, kill Haman. It was amazing. Just all the, I got to tell you what happened. I was just there at the nick of time. It was the right moment. There's no chariots drowning. There's no river parting. The entire calendar year is a celebration of deliverance. It starts with miracle the exodus, and it ends with the mundane and normal, the deliverance of Purim. The Jewish year, the rhythm of their celebration made a statement, God delivers, now let's celebrate. Always looking for a reason to party. God delivers, let's celebrate, and his deliverance bookends the year. Look what he has done. It wasn't enough that Esther was raised up to queen. It wasn't enough that Mordecai and Esther wrote a decree of freedom. It wasn't enough that the Jews won the battle. They had to celebrate. It wasn't enough to just see God work. There had to be a celebration, and we are called to the same. Oftentimes, we think of the Christian life. It's about endurance. It's about perseverance. Yes, it is. But it's also about celebrating the work of God. And some of us live as if most of the Bible is about fasting, 
The Bible is about fasting, self-denial, but the Bible is also about feasting, celebrating the work of God. You gotta have a balance on that. If you're just always feasting and never thinking about the self-denial verses, you're out of balance. But if you're always thinking about how difficult the Christian life is and how we're called to this hard thing, then you're, you're out of balance as well. It's fasting, but it's also feasting. Discipleship is about feasting. And so this passage, this chapter, calls us to ask the really spiritual question, are you good at partying? Some of you are too good, and that's a problem because I'm not talking about that kind of partying, but I'm talking about a celebration where we experience joy with others who have experienced what God has done for us. This is what we're called to. Part of our life is every Sunday we're doing this. We're called to celebrate, not individually, but with others, hence the gathered group, the party. We're to celebrate with others what God has done for us. We're to be a people of a peculiar joy. We're to be a people that it wouldn't be out of character for us to break into party. We're to be a people that easily kick into celebration mode. Because of what God has done for us. And in the Bible, it's mandated. You're supposed to come. You've got to come on these days and eat a lot of food and drink. You're supposed to do that in the Bible in the Old Covenant. It's a requirement. God wanted to be celebrated. With the people who know you best, those who see you at home when we don't see you, those who see me at home when you don't see me up here smiling and preaching my heart away, would the people who know you best at home, would they say, that characterizes you? Yet that, that person, I know them well. And I would say that when I think about their life, they're grateful for what God has done. They are glad for what God has done. They, like this party, they give freely to others. There's a joy about them. They're eager to welcome, enjoy, share, care, serve others with what they have especially those in need. They think of those in need, they give to those in need, they care for those in need. Or would those close to you say, uh, he's not a Purim guy. He's not a, she's not a Purim lady. Not at, not at all. Uh, I, I, I don't, I see them as lacking joy. Would people who know you say you lack joy, you're prone to complaining, not celebrating what God has done. You're stingy and tight, not it's a party. I share what I have. Self-focused rather than looking for the needs of others. See, Purim is an annual party, but it is a lifestyle that we are called to because every day, all day long, we experience deliverance. How is that? Because as great as this story is, the book of Esther, there is a greater deliverance that the Christian has experienced. This all happened way before Christ, but when Christ comes, we have now experienced, those who believe, new life in him. You see, we have received, what happens in Purim, verse 9.22, they got relief from their enemies, and Jesus comes, and he brings relief from our two greatest enemies, sin and death. That is our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is the sin which seeks to grip our hearts and turn us away from the loving Father, to ignore the God who created us, to blind us to who he is and what he's done and his many gifts that he's bestowed upon us, to turn away from that and to chase our own way. That's sin. And death which seeks to 
kill us, to take our life away, and to end it all, ushering us into judgment before God. These are our two. So they got relief. There is an edict over every life, guilty of sin, condemned to die, because we have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves. We have not obeyed him. And so we all deserve death. That is what hangs over your head, just like the Jews. There's a death sentence over every one of us. But Jesus comes, he's God in the flesh, he gives his life for us, he dies on the cross, he takes our sins upon himself, he's buried, he's raised to walk in new life, just as we saw demonstrated, uh, pictured in baptism today. He's raised to walk in new life, and so that anyone who would believe in him, we have all of our sins forgiven. And last week I pleaded with you, if you have not, and if you've not done that, I plead again today to come to the Lord and trust him alone for your salvation. Turn from your sin and believe in him. And then you get a new edict. It's not just neutralizes the death edict like in this story, but it liberates you into a new life that is an eternal life. And it it draws you into a feast. It draws you into a life that has problems to be sure, but it draws you into a life that at its root has an inner peace and a rest and a joy that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And one day we will experience the great feast of all when we will see Christ face to face in a new heavens and new earth. And the Bible says there will be a great feast for all of his people gathered together. So we look to an eternal feast, but we experience that today. The Bible says in Romans 8 that if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? That means whatever you need, God will give to meet your need. And whatever will not be good for you and me, whatever will not help us to be conformed to the image of Christ, he won't give us. He is a good God who cares for us. He doesn't reverse every situation in our lives like he did for the Jews, but he will one day reverse all things, remove all sin, all pain, all suffering, all oppression, all abuse, all loneliness, all all, uh, emptiness, all hatred, all anger, all lust, all selfishness, all pride will be gone. And he will wipe every, yes, thank you, Lord. May it be, come, Lord. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And that is a day of celebration. But this book tells us you don't have to wait until then. You can know him now. You can experience him now. And you can get this party started now, celebrating who he is and what he's done. He's relieved you from your greatest enemy, sin and death. And so let's gather Sunday after Sunday and in coffee shops talking together and in our living rooms and in our small groups and in the lobby out here in about 60 seconds. And wherever we are, let's gather as the people of God saying, he has freed us. Isn't he good? Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at Grace Church Frisco dot o-r-g